and all those who have taken part for the musicians behind us and can I add to the welcome that's already been given to everyone, especially to students, but to everyone thinking this morning that God has no favourites and if you've never been anything other than a student of life, you're very welcome uh, this evening. Let's just pray and ask God to help us understand his word. Let's pray together. Lord, we bow in your presence, the one to whom all hearts are open from whom no secrets are hidden. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you'll help us now to see ourselves as you see us, in the light of your word and your truth, and that you'll take that word by your spirit and apply it to us in our own lives. And we ask it in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen. The story is told, and uh, I read it in a Christian book, so it must be true, um, of a white minister who was invited to preach in a black church in the southern United States. No sooner had he announced his subject for the sermon, the story of the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, than a voice in the congregation shouted out, Praise the Lord, what a mighty miracle, taking all God's children through those mighty waters. The preacher, who was theologically liberal and didn't believe in miracles, looked condescendingly down from the pulpit and said, Scholars believe that they were doubtless in marshland, the tide was ebbing, and so at most the Israelites picked their way through six inches of muddy water. There was a pause, and then the voice came back again. What a mighty miracle! Praise the Lord! drowning all them horses and chariots in six inches of muddy water. (laughs) Whichever way you look at it, uh, the story which is our subject this evening is, if the Bible is to be believed, a mighty miracle. It's one of the great events in the history of Israel, celebrated in Psalms of Praise. It's the subject of numerous works of art, such as that by the 15th century Florentine artist Biagio di Antonio. For those who are studying history of art, that's your bit. But above all else, it's a story to recall as a source of encouragement at times of difficulty. And so it's not surprising uh, that the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews Addressed to Christians from a Hebrew or Jewish background, Christians who attempted to give up following Jesus should include the story of the crossing of the Red Sea as an example in the words of our series of living by faith. Now, if you heard the last in our series, you will remember, I hope, the awesome events of the first Passover night. The firstborn of every family in Egypt struck down by the angel of death at midnight. Pharaoh summoned Moses, the leader of Israel, and he told him to take his people and leave at once. And a huge mass of people, estimates range between one and two million, set out from Egypt, laden down, not only with their possessions and their animals, but also with gifts of gold and silver, and clothing from the Egyptian people. What excitement and anticipation there must have been. It was a night that the people of Israel would remember forever, and still celebrate to this day. In fact, they did it last week, I think, 
Monday was Yom Kippur in Israel and for the diaspora of Jews throughout the world. And yet, within a few days, this vast crowd of men, women and children were faced with an enormous crisis. There are some people who believe, and sadly some preachers who teach, that once you become a Christian, that should be the end of all your problems. That you were saved, not from slavery in Egypt, but from the power of sin, through the death of Jesus, and you're set free to enjoy a new and wonderful life. And that is absolutely true, but while it is true, sooner or later, usually sooner, your faith will be challenged by some particular issue. If you're a Christian here this evening, and it's not yet happened, listen carefully so you're ready when it does. If you're in the middle of a crisis right now, listen to what God may want to say to you through my feeble words. That was what happened to the people of Israel at the Red Sea. It was a crisis, and that's our subject this evening. Faith and crisis. So, first of all, we look at what the writer to the book of, in the book of Hebrews says about those events that we heard read in Exodus 13 and 14. Just one verse to focus on, but we'll look at the background as well. Here's what Hebrews 11, verse 29 says. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land, but when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Now, the particular circumstances are unique. I don't expect after this anyone in Charlotte Chapel to go out to the Firth of Forth and get across to the Kingdom of Fife by other means than the Fourth Road Bridge or whatever. But I want to suggest that we can identify in this story three components in a crisis. Three components that make up a crisis. Here's the first and most obvious one. You can work these out for yourself, by the way, but it may help you just to hang a peg on what we're going to think about this evening. Here's the first one. An impassable object, obstacle. There's been a lot of speculation and scholarly study and no unanimity about where exactly this Red Sea is. The first thing you need to know is that it's not the Red Sea that my wife and I go to every year in Egypt snorkeling when we can afford it. Uh, the word red is really a mistranslation from the Greek Old Testament of a word that really means reedy or marshy. So it may be a general name for a stretch of water that was marshy or reedy. If you've ever had to study Hebrew, you'll know there are no capital letters in Hebrew. I remember first studying Hebrew, spending hours trying to puzzle up through a word, but before I realised it was the name Jehoshaphat. Well, no capital letters, you can't do it. Uh, so, but more likely, it's a specific name for a particular sea. And there have been four, just for those who are interested, there have been four possible locations identified. as a map on the screen, I think. From north to south, the Gulf of Suez, the Bitter Lakes, higher up, Lake Timsar, and least likely of all, Lake Bardarwil in the north. It doesn't matter, any of that. You don't need to write it down, all right? Unless you're really interested. Uh, whatever is the correct location, the, most, the, the, the strongest opinion is it's the Bitter Lakes. The indisputable fact is that the people of Israel found themselves confronted by an impassable obstacle. There was no way across it. 
for such a vast number of people, and I don't suppose anyone thought of going through it. But the most important point you need to know about this is the location of the Red Sea. It was chosen by the Lord. Did you notice that in the reading? This is what the Lord said to Moses, Exodus 14, 1 and 2. Tell the Israelites to turn back and camp near Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea. They had to camp by the sea directly opposite Baal-Zephon. It was no mistake that they found themselves in a crisis situation. You see, on this new journey to the promised land, they discovered that the God who had led them out and delivered them would guide them day by day by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. So they would travel, and it's an interesting exercise if you've got the time to look through those early books of the Bible, Exodus, Numbers, and then into Deuteronomy, at the pace the people travelled and the route they took. They travelled by the Lord's direction and at the Lord's pace. And providing they followed his directions, which they didn't always do, every place they came to would be on the Lord's route map. It's a sort of biblical GPS, you know? Tom-tom or what they call it. You know where you get your directions on your car? And so every place they came to, even places like the Red Sea where there was no way forward, were on the Lord's route for them. Part of the Lord's plan. Because the Lord said to them, they were wandering in the opposite direction, he said, turn back, camp right by the sea, facing it. Now what was true for them is true for us. If we are following the Lord Jesus Christ, directed by his word, keeping in step with his Holy Spirit. And it is this, we will never arrive at a place that God has not planned beforehand for us. Now, depending where you're at this evening in your walk with God, you will either say, yeah, I agree with that, or you may be in a place this evening where it's pretty hard to swallow and say, yeah, I agree with that. Because we all agree with it in theory. You know those wonderful verses in Proverbs, so often quote Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, you know them by heart. I keep quoting them, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. I think that's the authorised version, but he will make your ways straight. The Lord Jesus Christ compared himself to a shepherd. Remember in John chapter 10, if you know the Gospels? And he said he calls his sheep, he leads his sheep, and then like a western shepherd who drives the sheep from behind, usually with dogs, seen the programme One Man and His Dog, The eastern shepherd leads the sheep from in front and because they know him and trust him, they follow him so that wherever the sheep tread, the shepherd has already gone before. This is what Jesus said in John 10. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. So wherever they go, wherever we go, we can be assured that he's gone ahead of us, if we have heard and responded to his voice. But, that does not mean, that his pastoral was easy, and that sometimes we end up in very difficult destinations. However, when that happens, or if you're in that place even this evening, 
We can be sure that it was chosen by God, but we can be sure of a second thing as well, the reason why it was chosen by God. It is always chosen by God for his glory. Look at what the Lord went on to say to Moses. Pharaoh will think, this is Exodus 14, 3 and 4, Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert, and will harden Pharaoh's hearts. He will pursue them, but I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. You see, God is most glorified in our difficulties. For they provide an opportunity for him to show his glory. That is his sovereignty, his control, and his power to the watching world. The greater the difficulty, the greater the glory that goes to God. And I don't say it glibly. I've been in some pretty tough situations myself where it's hard to believe that. But this is what living by faith is all about. And while as we see, we'll see in a moment, God willing, God shows his glory and judgment to those like the Egyptians who oppose him, who defy him, he shows his glory and salvation to those who trust him, to those who live by faith. Writing to the Christians in Corinth, uh, the opening chapter of the second letter to the Corinthians, to Corinthians, the Apostle Paul shares an experience that he had with his colleagues. He describes it as a near-death experience. This is what he writes, 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. Now, that's pretty grim language. And the word translated despair there is a long Greek word that means they just didn't seem any way out from their situation. Death seemed to stare them in the face. But looking back on this, because he survived it, Paul says he can see in it God's purpose. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 9. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and future faith says he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. So let me repeat what I'm trying to say at this point, if it's not already obvious. Maybe you're facing a situation in your life right now where you can't see a way out. It's not a sea, it's just a brick wall or a circumstance. Or maybe it's a temptation that you're unable to resist. Remember God's promise, again in the letter he wrote to the Corinthians, the first letter, the Apostle Paul uses this word temptation. In James we've been looking at it, it can mean temptation or testing, and I've put the other bit in brackets. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, another verse you should know by heart. No temptation or test has seized you except what is common to man. It's not unique. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted or tested beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted or tested, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. He'll provide a way out or a way through or a way that will enable you to cope with that impossible situation. That's the first component of a crisis. The one that the Israelites found themselves in. There's a second component. The sea was in front of them, but behind them was another serious problem. So, as well as an impossible, impassable obstacle, can't remember my alliteration here, notice secondly, an implacable enemy. 
You see, the Israelites, when they left Egypt, they thought that was the end of Pharaoh and his army and his people. Good riddance. At last they were free. But they were wrong, for Pharaoh had second thoughts about his decision to let them go. And they discovered there was a formidable foe. There is a formidable foe whom the Israelites faced. Exodus 14.5 So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready, took his army with him. He took 600 of the best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. Maybe you've just become a Christian. Great. Maybe you want to Christianity explode. Great. Or you know friends who are going to go. Take them with you. You can go with them, by the way, and stay with them through the course. That would be great. Many people do that. But if you just become a Christian, sometimes when you first become a Christian, in that new life, that euphoria, it, you, you can almost assume that the battle with Satan and sin is over. But although, as we'll see, ultimate victory is assured, we still face an implacable enemy who is at work in our world. Do you remember when Jesus was baptised in water and the Spirit? What followed immediately afterwards? The Gospels record the same Spirit literally drove him out to be tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. And when you become a Christian, and often... There are serious points to watch in your life as a Christian. The higher the experience as a Christian, when you first become a Christian or you have some great experience of God's love or the Holy Spirit in fresh power, always be careful at that point. I often say to people, some of you getting baptised, God willing, in a couple of weeks' time, I always say to people getting baptised, be careful before and after being baptised because when you take a step of obedience to Christ, war is declared. You see, before you become a follower of Jesus, the Bible describes you as being dead in trespasses and sins, it says. And if you're dead, you're no use to God and you're no threat to the enemy. But when, as the Bible describes it, you're made alive in Christ, when you change your allegiance, when you transfer sides, you also discover that you have a formidable foe, a formidable foe whom Christians face. Here's what the Apostle Peter writes in his first letter. Be self-controlled and alert, Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. In other words, be on guard. If I was to say to you, just be careful when you leave Rose Street, there's a lion that's escaped from the Edinburgh Zoo and it's roaming around looking for someone to devour. You'd be pretty careful going out there, wouldn't you? It's not happened, by the way. But, um, not, I don't think we've even got one up there. But probably a penguin, but we won't go into that. Um, but Peter says, your enemy, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion looking for Christians to devour. So be on your guard. Writing again to the Christians in Ephesus, Ephesus was one of the great occult centres of the ancient world church was planted there. If you've been to Ephesus, even the ancient site, it's an amazing, impressive place. The Apostle Paul reminds them that they face, and we face, a continuing conflict. It's what he says. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not a human enemy we face. Our struggle is against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. 
Say that to most people, they think you're mad. Say it to most people in other parts of the world, you don't even have to prove that. And increasingly in our society, people realizing that there are evil, malign powers at work in our world. And at times of crisis, it may seem that, humanly speaking, the outcome of the battle against such a formidable foe is in doubt. When the best trained army of the greatest empire on earth pursued the Israelites as slave people with hardly any trained soldiers and finally overtook them by the shores of the Red Sea, it seemed like no contest. I don't think you'd have had many takers on an Israelite victory. Even less than a Scottish victory yesterday against France. But there you are, you see. Well, I won't go into that. But the Lord, the Lord tells Moses that victory is assured for the Israelites against Pharaoh and his army. Exodus 14:18. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And I simply want to say to you on the authority, not of mine, but on the authority of God's word and what Jesus did when he died on the cross, that for the Christian, victory is assured because the word of God tells us that when Jesus died on the cross and when he was declared with power to be the Son of God by being raised from the dead, he defeated the powers of darkness. Here's what Paul writes to the church in Colossae. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, that is Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. It's the wonderful picture of the Roman... Have you seen the series on ancient Rome? Uh, when a Roman general returned in triumph, he brought all the leading people and soldiers in chains, dragged behind him through the streets, declaring his power and victory. And that's the picture that's used here. The war goes on, but final victory is assured by the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, 25. Final victory for he, Jesus, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Now the question is, when we face a crisis, when we become aware there are forces arrayed against us that we'd probably never dreamed of before, when the temptations seem so great and the pressures seem so enormous, do we have that assurance, again as the Apostle John puts it, that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. You need that if you're going to win the crisis, if you're going to come through the crisis. But there's a third component as well. It's the third point of a crisis. And it's this. Not only what's in front of you, the sea, not only what's behind you, the enemy, often our biggest problem is what's within us, our own reaction. And I've called this an inexcusable reaction. I'll explain why in a moment, not just to make it rhyme with all the other points. Uh, faced with the sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army behind them, we see the response of people. Notice what they say. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. Two things about their reaction. They are terrified by the enemy, confused by their circumstances. Terrified by the enemy, confused by their circumstances. Now you might say, I should have entitled this, a natural reaction. Or if you want it to rhyme, I was going to call it an inevitable reaction. What would you and I have felt and said in such a situation? Is it not natural to be petrified by an elite army of 600 chariots about to sweep down on you? 
is it not natural to be confused about those instructions that Moses, your leader, said, instead of escaping to the desert, he said, no, turn round and face the sea. Can you blame them for wondering if this whole adventure was one big mistake, they would have been better off staying as slaves in Egypt? And I simply ask you, as I ask myself preparing this, have you and I never been afraid when faced with some awful crisis? Have we never questioned the circumstances that God has allowed in our lives? Have you never complained about God or to God? And have you not even, though we might never say it out loud, wondered if we'd been better off never having followed Jesus in the first place and stayed as slaves to our pleasures and sins? I remember some years ago, my last church, many years ago now, a young man had just become a, become a Christian about a year later. I said to him, how are you getting on? He said, if I had known it was going to be like this, I don't think I'd have ever become a Christian in the first place. He wasn't saying I'm going to give up, but he was saying, I just never realised I'd be faced like that and feel like that if I'd known the things that were ahead of me. And surely such reactions seem natural. And they are if you don't know the Lord. But you see, these people did know the Lord. They'd experienced amazing signs and wonders in Egypt. They'd been rescued from slavery. They'd been led by God's visible presence, by cloud and fire. And although their complaint is against Moses, they're really complaining about the Lord. And that's why their response, I would suggest to you, is an inexcusable reaction. Notice the contrasting response of Moses. Exodus 14, 13. Moses answered the people, Don't be afraid. Stand firm. You'll see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Notice how he directly addresses their wrong reaction. Rather than being petrified by Pharaoh and his chariots, he tells them, Don't fear the enemy. And in place of confusion about their circumstances, he says, Just wait. It's going to become clear. Wait for the Lord to act. You see, ultimately, the crisis is a crisis of faith. Faith in God. Faith in his character and his promises. Is God reliable? Can he be trusted? Does he love me? Is he greater than Pharaoh and his army? Can God really save? Is God a God of power? Moses is in no doubt. Unlike the people, his reaction is the response of faith. You see, there are times in our lives, I'm trying to be as honest as possible, because one of the great dangers of preachers is to exaggerate. Let me be as honest as possible. There are times in our lives when we face crises and we really have not a clue what's happening. If you've never been in that place as a Christian, you will be. I can say it without any doubt. The Apostle Paul, again, if you want a book that really deals with all this, read Second Corinthians, because it's all about this kind of thing. It's the most honest of Paul's letters, because it's all about the real Paul. Not that his other letters are dishonest, but they're saying they're theological and explaining. But this is about the real experience he went through. And he tells how, on one of his journeys, he said, God guided us very clearly to Macedonia and Greece. And when we got there, we were totally confused, because we were disturbed in our spirits, and we wondered, what on earth are we doing here? We just couldn't make any sense of it. 
is what he says. For when we came to Macedonia, this is 2 Corinthians 7, 5. When we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. We were harassed or harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. The authorised version, it says, fightings with, fightings uh, without, fears within. You ever felt like that? Fightings without, fears within. But that doesn't alter the fact about his conviction. Here's a wonderful verse, is what he says. And again, it's the picture of the Roman triumph through the streets. But 2 Corinthians 2.14, another verse to learn. Keep doing these verses, just jot them down and you know, put on a bit of paper and learn them when you're on the way on the bus or something. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of him. Time to look at it in detail. It's a wonderful picture of the Roman triumph going through. You know when the Romans came through, they didn't throw ticket, ticket tape. They broke perfume, jars of perfume. And so the whole thing, he got this fantastic smell of victory as they went through the streets. And he says, when God takes us through his experiences, he sometimes breaks us and the perfume, the fragrance of God's grace at work in our lives, it spreads to everybody around. They say, wow, that's God. Thanks be to God. That is the response of faith that trusts God even in the hardest times and waits for him to act. Okay, coming to the conclusion, the time's going. These are the components of crisis, but if you've been observant, I've not really focused on the verse particularly at the present time. So let me, in conclusion, I want you to notice, and it's very obvious, the contrasting outcome of the crisis. You see, you may identify with the reaction of the Israelites at the Red Sea. You may be in that situation today and say, look, I feel really guilty. I'm just panicking. I don't know what's going on. And surely God's finished with me because I've got such a wrong reaction. I'm so confused and I'm really angry. And I've, I've actually said to a few people, I don't know what God's doing with my life at the present time. And maybe you think you've blown it. Well, let's be, look at what it actually says. You see, the verse doesn't focus on the initial response. It doesn't say, by faith Moses, but by unbelief, the Israelites. No, it focuses on the Israelites, not on their initial response of fear and doubt, but on their final response of saving faith. So notice the first thing, the first division, the contrast. They were saved through the sea, the Israelites. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry ground. It doesn't say by faith Moses. It says by faith the people. Not only Moses, but all the people passed through the Red Sea and were saved. They were saved by faith. And if you've been in this series at all, you'll know that there are the same components of saving faith again and again. First of all, God acts. This time he acts through Moses. He tells him what to do and what the people are to do. Exodus 14, 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on, raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Moses does as instructed. The waters are divided. And the people respond in obedience. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. The Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. Now they could have rejected Moses. They could have looked at it and said, this looks a bit risky to me. Or as a cartoon I saw, everybody turned around and said, what do you mean it looks a bit muddy? <laughs> but they, they took the step of faith. They obeyed what God said through Moses. They identified with what God was doing in this situation. 
just for those who, who are interested in studying the Bible, whenever you study the Old Testament, always look to see if there's any cross-reference in the New Testament to what you're studying. If you've got in those Bibles with margins in, there's usually little verses, and if you've got very good eyesight or a magnifying glass, you can work out what it's saying. Once again, very interestingly, the Apostle Paul refers to this story in one of his letters. Again, the letter to the Corinthians. And remember, the Corinthians weren't Jews, so they must have been... Got some background here. Uh, and he talks about how they identified with Moses. And he uses a very interesting picture. Picture of baptism. Listen carefully. Well, this is 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 2. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Not an easy verse to understand. What he's saying is, our forefathers identified themselves with Moses and with what God was doing through Moses by being guided by him through the cloud, God's presence, and through the sea. Now, of course, this is a unique event. That's why we call it a miracle. God doesn't expect us to walk through parted seas on dry ground. But what God does expect of us in our day is the same response of faith to what God has done. What is God doing these days? Well, the writer of the Hebrews says, God has done something better than he did through Moses. Through someone who is actually greater than Moses. Who was the great hero. The great leader. The writer of the Hebrews says to the, these Jewish Christians, don't go back to that stuff because there's something better. There is a better person. And God's leader, if you want to put it that way, is his son Jesus Christ. God has made a way of salvation. He has acted through his son Jesus. But we must identify with him and all that he's done for us through his death and resurrection. We must say, I belong to Jesus. I trust in him for forgiveness. I rely on his spirit to equip me day by day. And the Apostle Paul reminds the Christians in Rome that this is what baptism symbolizes. Identification with Jesus. This is what he says. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? A couple of weeks, come in two weeks' time. This, if you've not been before, this opens up. There's a deep pool in there. Fill it with water, warm water, put immersion heaters in. And people go under the water and it's like a death. They're identified with Jesus. It's a symbol. There's no great power or magic in it. It's just a symbol. They go down in the water, they say, I'm identifying with Jesus and his death on the cross. They come out of the water very quickly and they're identified with Jesus in his life, his resurrection life. Paul says, don't you know that's what it's about? It's what it means to be a Christian. It's identifying with Christ. It's a corporate thing. Baptism is being baptized into Christ and into his body. It's belonging to God's people. It's a symbol that you belong to God's people. That's why in many parts of the world where I've lived myself, many societies today, you can say you're a follower of Jesus. Once you're baptized, people from these cultures know that's the crossing line. It's only a symbol, but it's a very marked public symbol of saying, I'm a follower of Jesus. And it can be very costly for people today, many parts of the world, to follow Jesus in that way. But notice the contrast. I have almost finished, all right? The Israelites were saved through the sea. The Egyptians were drowned in the sea. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea on dry ground, dry land. 
But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. Notice the contrast which run through the story. The cloud which guided the Israelites confused the Egyptians. The rod which was lifted to part the waters was dropped again and lifted to bring the waters back in judgment. The sea through which the Israelites were saved was the means of destruction for the Egyptians. So it is with the gospel of Christ. It's a divisive thing. That's why Paul says, to some way the fragrance of life, to other people with a stench of death. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the most divisive person in human history. You either identify with him and are saved, or you refuse to identify with him and you are lost. Eternally lost. We either identify with him and all that he did for us and experience life or we reject him and face God's judgment. It's a sober place to finish, but it's where the text finishes. So I conclude with the last verse of John 3. Everybody knows John 3.16, great verse. God so loved the world, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know what John 3.36 says? Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him this evening you're either experiencing life or you're on death row living under God's judgment God has made a way by which you may be saved not judged make sure you take it and that you're trusting in Christ identifying with him and whatever crisis comes your way He'll take you through it. That's the promise of God's word as we look at faith in crisis. Let's just pray for a moment then we'll sing a song together.